0: All right, well, welcome, everybody. It is so good to be able to have uh, this time with you. It's so good to be back. Um, I have just been so grateful uh, for um, Pastor Evan preaching and sharing with us and, and then with Navy Chaplain Kevin uh, preaching and, and leading through Jonah 3 yesterday and or last week, rather. And so, again, I'm just so thankful for them Uh, I'm thankful for uh, Dan Goodham and Art and Mary and Susie and just our entire staff and volunteers and um, so many people that have come uh, and the worship band Susie as well. And uh, it's just been really, really great to be able to kind of navigate this season together. And so uh, I'm excited to be able to be back in the saddle, if you will, and to be able to dive in uh, to God's Word together as we conclude this Runaway series through uh, looking at Jonah chapter 4. So if you will uh, just join me in a word of prayer, then we will uh, start our time together through the God's Word. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, and we thank you that you are um, with us wherever we are now, whether we are um, at home, whether we're uh, surrounded by kids, whether we are um, by ourselves or with other people, Lord. We know that we are never truly alone because you are with us. And we thank you for the technology that allows us to be connected uh, via chat or Facebook or however we're tuning in. So Lord, we thank you for for the body of Christ not being the four walls around us, Lord, but instead it's uh, the people. And so we're thankful for our church. Lord, I pray that as we dive into your word that I would decrease, you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. We love you, Lord. it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said, and as we're mentioning, uh, just so thankful to be here today. And, and I know that for many of us, this is a season in which the idea of, of thankfulness is a little difficult. Um, for some of us, we are in a place that we're just really sad about things, sad about the way uh, things are turning out, and um, sad about just the dynamics of what it means to not be around each other as much or not to be able to feel the freedom to to be together as a congregation, or to be together as a community. Um, you know, this past, a couple of weeks ago, I ended up doing uh, a wedding for someone, a close family friend. Uh, I'd served with her in ministry, and um, I did her, her and her um, fiance's premarital counseling, and, and they were supposed to be married last Sunday, March 29th, and it came, you know, a couple weeks out, it turned into hey, we're going to have to, you know, maybe move it up a little bit. And, you know, here's what the, the government's suggesting and all those different things. And it turned out that it had shrunk all the way down and we couldn't have more than 10 people together. And so their idea of what their wedding was going to be ended up having to be um, pretty different. And there's a grief in that. There's a sadness in that to recognize that the plans that we've had uh, didn't work out. Now, in this specific circumstance, um, again, thanks to technology, uh, I was able to uh, do the wedding via Skype, and so with uh, my girls, we dressed up as flower girls, and Steph was a bridesmaid, so we were all just in our family room, and uh, we're able to marry them from afar as they were uh, in L.A. County or San Bernardino County, so, uh, but there's a sadness there. There are people who are sad because um, you know, they're not going to be able to see their, their high school senior walk during graduation. There are people who are sad because it's a time in which the finances and just trying to start a business or launch a business, and now those plans, thanks to the coronavirus, just seem to be falling to the wayside. People who are sad, and it's okay for us to acknowledge that. You know, some of us are really anxious right now. We're anxious about the fact that we just don't know what this season's going to look like, and we're anxious because how are things going to make ends meet, and how are we going to make this work? And there's a lot of anxiety. And A.W. And, um, Tozer, I heard recently that when there's fear and anxiety, when the, a fearless, or sorry, excuse me, a frightened world needs a fearless church. What does it look like for us to be that kind of church to say, yes, the world may be anxious, but we recognize that when we cast our anxieties upon, upon God, that He cares for us and that He provides and we can be that light in a dark place? Some of us are actually kind of glad right now. Some of us have a season in which we're slowing down a little bit. And, you know, we did a Be Still series uh, about six months ago. And people are like, oh, I would love to do, you know, quiet times more frequently or Sabbath or spiritual disciplines. But I just don't have the time. And now for some people, it's almost like a forced Sabbath, a forced slowness and a forced stillness. And, and in that forcing, we're leaning into it and we're growing. But what I want to talk about today is this idea that some of us are, are mad. Right now, we're angry and we're angry because whether we're sad or anxious that now we're upset at God or we're upset at the situation, we're angry of how things are working out or how they're not working out. And so it's fitting for us to be able to close our series through Jonah by looking at Jonah chapter four, in which we look at Jonah as this angry prophet. And, and we're going to see how anger frames this section of scripture, these last 11 verses to close out the book of Jonah in our runaway series, the idea of how Jonah ran away from what God called and how he was angry internally, and yet God still used him. And so let's dive in to his word together. And before we do... I just want to share our main point. So for those of you who are, have been with us before, um, you know I like having main points and notes and things like that. And so on the, um, let's see. On the upper corner, if you're watching on a phone or tablet, it should be on the upper left-hand corner in the menu. If you're looking um, at the desktop or laptop version, uh, you're going to see some links at the top, and some say giving or prayer request or kids, um, and the bulletin, one of them will say um, sermon notes or something along those lines, so you could follow along, and if you have Adobe, you could fill them in if you want, or completely ignore it, because I won't know the difference, so uh, just feel free to do that however you want, but our main point, if you want to follow along, uh, will be found there, and our main point says this, that We often run away from God when we are angry, but thankfully, no matter how far we run, we can't outrun God. We often run away from God when we're angry, but thankfully, no matter how far we run, how far gone we may feel, we cannot outrun God. So again, we're going to see in Jonah chapter four, uh, we're going to start in verse one in just a moment, but before we do, I want to share this next point on on your notes there is that what are the different times in which we may get angry? And yeah, there's a multiple options. But let me share just a few coming out of the passage today of times in which we may get angry with God. And this one is we may get angry with God when he does something that we don't think is right. That we don't think is right. And so let's see how Jonah fits into that uh, through the first few verses of Jonah chapter four. Verse one says this. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That that is what I try to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I know you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And we see this here. It starts off in verse 1. But this seems very wrong to Jonah. What's the but referring to? that but this seemed very wrong. And what's the this referring to? And we see that when um, we're looking at, oh, excuse me. I'm still learning how to do this. Uh, we're looking at the scripture from Jonah chapter three, nine and 10, that it's saying, as, as Kevin did a great job referring to us last week, Jonah preaches the shortest sermon that prophet has ever preached. And From that sermon, we see that the king of the Ninevites said, we must turn from our violent ways. And verse 9 specifically says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so so that we, excuse me, will not perish. And when God saw what they did in verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. And It's right after verse 10 in Jonah 3 that the next chapter is, but Jonah, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, that it seemed like God was doing something that wasn't right in Jonah's mind, and so he was angry about it. An example of this would be, you know, someone that we think, you know, has done just these horrible things, and then they come to know the Lord, and there's redemption and forgiveness, and it's almost like, how could God forgive someone who did this, or who said that, or committed these crimes or whatever it may be. And, and there's these moments in which we think people are so far gone and that we know somehow that we should be excited that someone came to know the Lord that doesn't. And we should rejoice with the angels that when one sinner who needs to repent, repents. And we should feel that joy. There are times in which we think, no, God, how could you forgive that? This person on death row, how could you forgive what that person did? This person in our family, our close friends who, who hurt us, how can you forgive them? How could they find redemption? It seems wrong. And, and part of why it seems wrong is that we still somehow deep inside feel like, I don't know, that we can still be good enough on our own. That um, we think that we can be good enough that God would receive us and and then be able to forgive us. But we see from the scripture, we see from the gospel that none of us are good on our own. No, not one. We see that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. That none are righteous on our own. In fact, our righteousness is as filthy rags. And yet Jesus came and he who knew no sin became sin so that our filthy rags may become white robes of redemption and righteousness. And see, let's, let's look at verse 2 again. And, and chapter 4, verse 2, is a verse that you'll see um, are in, it's, it's quoted a lot, and it looks really beautiful. In fact, uh, what it says again, the second part of it says, I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, who relents of doing harm. And it, It looks like it's so sweet and it looks like it's so encouraging. In fact, this verse has been used over and over and over and over again in order to demonstrate how great God is and how his character is amazing and beautiful. And it is. And he is. But context is important, right? Like if I were to say, uh, if someone were to say, hey, I like to push children, Uh, context is important there because if you like to push children on a swing, you're a fun guy, you're nice. If you want to push a child to get out of the way because you want to get a foul ball at a game, then that makes you just the worst, right? And so context is important. The context of this verse is saying, God, I knew that you were gracious and abundant in loving kindness. I knew that you were good and that's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. I didn't want to go to a place in which I knew your loving kindness would supersede or forgive their evil. Because as Kevin shared with us last week, there's this line that we create of the us versus the them. And if we look at the us and think that only those who fall in the us category should be received by God and should believe and receive eternal life, then again, we're giving this, we're drawing a line in the sand and and trying to say that God should favor who I think he should favor rather than recognizing that God's favor goes far beyond my wants or desires, that people might be hard, who might be hard for me, the, the Nineveh to our lives, those people who are hard to love, God loves them too. The ones who have rejected him their entire lives. And if that's you watching online right now, you got invited by a friend who shared a link, or you just you know, found it somehow, it's not by accident. If you hear nothing else, and you don't know Jesus, you don't, uh, you don't get why we're talking about this, but if you know nothing else, if you just know that God loves you so much that even if you've run away from him, you can't outrun him. You could run away and have that moment of being in the rock bottom, and then you turn and you come back to him or come to him for the first time, and he welcomes you in like a father's arms and that you have eternal life. See, we see here, if we looked back on verse nine of chapter three, the king of Nineveh says, who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will still relent. When I, at home, will sometimes just talk about, you know, the, que- the girls might ask a question, like, I don't know, who knows? And they started to just say, God knows. And I'm like, I love it. From the mouth of babes come wisdom and truth. And being able to say, well, who knows? Well, God knows. But you know who else who knows? Jonah knows. Jonah knows that God is faithful and loving and kind. And that's why, because of God's character and forgiveness and relenting, he knew that God would do that or could do that. And that's why he held so tightly to his anger and his hatred towards a people that he was willing to let them die rather than to experience how much God loves them. And in fact, verse 3 hits this point even more. He says, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better to die than to live. See, Jonah would rather die than live in a world in which the them could be loved by God. He would rather die than see his enemies, people he perceived as his enemies, become in a right relationship with God. And thanks be to God he doesn't see it that way because while we were still enemies, God demonstrated his own love by sending Jesus to die on the cross. Thanks be to God, he doesn't have the same view of us and them as Jonah does, and as many of us may have as well. So not only do we see that we may get angry with God when he does something that we don't think is right. God, don't save those people, they don't deserve it. Or don't do this because that's not right. We can be angry when that happens. But we also can get angry, as we'll see in Jonah, that we may know that, oh, here's the verse. That's where it was. We may get angry with God when he prioritizes our holiness over our happiness. We might get angry with God when he prioritizes our holiness over our happiness. That's, not a, that's a quote that if you've gone to church for a while, you've heard before. But it's important for us to, to dive in a little bit here because here's how God responds. Verse one talks about how Jonah was angry. Verse four says this, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah doesn't respond. Here's what happens instead. Verse five, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head, so he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to live, or sorry, better for me to die than to live. He repeats the same thing that he repeated earlier in verse three, that it would be better for me to die than to live because I'm angry, Lord. Not only did you save people that, I don't think was right for you to save. Not only did you relent upon them, but now me, your servant, you are now putting me through this incredibly difficult time of seeing the repentance, and I'm struggling with that, and then providing a vine or a plant for me to find shade, and then providing a worm to eat through it, and then providing an eastern wind that was, uh, in the Hebrew, talks about a scorching wind. And God, why is it that you will show kindness to my enemy and show, I don't know, that you wouldn't show that same kindness to me as well. This is what Jonah is wrestling with. That verse five, when he talks about this, um, he'd gone out and he makes himself a place outside of the city. Kevin referred to this last week about how Jonah has these different directional cues. How first Jonah goes west or away from God's calling to Tarshish away from Nineveh. Then he goes down into the belly of the great fish. Then he goes into the city, but then he goes outside of the city. And when he goes outside of the city, the New American Commentary puts it this way, that for Jonah, rather than examining himself as the Lord had wished, he examined the city to see if they were the ones who would change. Have you ever done that? You ever had one of those times when you Want to see someone else suffer or want to see someone else be changed and you don't recognize that you need to change too? Maybe this idea, of if I were to ask you that you could change the world if you just started with one person. How many of you say, yes, that would be awesome. I would love to do that. And then the follow-up question being, and how many of you would be willing to do that if that one person was you? Then all of a sudden you put your hand down and you put them in your pockets and you pretend, I don't know, that's what they were thinking. No, no, It's this idea of recognizing Jonah heard the repentance. He saw them working, but he wanted to still get a view from the outside of the city. Say, will God still relent or will he still do the destruction that he threatened? As we see in verse 6, as he's waiting there, he makes a shelter. And then again, God provides this plant to cover him and to provide this shade. That the word to ease his discomfort in verse 6 um, relates to, yours literally the word, to deliver him from his evil. To deliver him from his evil. This idea that he needed to be re- relieved of this, of this evil inside him, that even though God was doing great things through him, Jonah still had this bitterness inside him. Have you ever heard of that statement before? I heard a pastor say years ago uh, that if when there's bitterness or lack of forgiveness or anger or a grudge if we're holding on to something like that it's it's like drinking the poison and then waiting for the other person to die this idea of thinking oh, okay I'm going to wait for them to suffer when in reality, it's that anger that we don't check or that we don't come to God with. It's that grudge that we're holding on to, even though we know we're called to forgive. It's that lack of love for other people and forgiveness for them that we just say, but no, people don't understand. And no, you're right. I don't understand all the things that have happened to you, all, all the hurts and the wounds that you've experienced. And, and I don't know the heartache and I'm not trying to um, glaze over that. I'm not trying to um, unvalidate those emotions, but instead it's taking those emotions and bringing them before God and, and recognizing that when I don't forgive, when I hold a grudge, when I am angry and I don't process through it, it's like I'm drinking poison and I'm waiting for that other person to die. Verse six, there's a, there's a note here um, That God provided the plant to deliver him from his evil, to ease his discomfort. And then it says, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. And it's intriguing because it's the first time that we actually see Jonah happy. He wasn't happy when God saved him by sending, providing a a great fish to be able to swallow him up so he didn't drown. He wasn't happy when that fish put him upon dry land. He wasn't happy when 120,000 lives were saved through the gospel or through the good news that Jesus, um, or rather the good news that God would relent. He wasn't happy about this. He was happy about a plant, about some shade, about some discomfort he was experiencing. And so sometimes God prioritizes our holiness and shaping us to become more like him instead of just giving us what would make us most happy. In fact, sometimes he needs to strip us of the things that would cause our happiness so that we would understand that our true joy can only come from him. And Jonah, for the first time, is happy. He feels like he's been heard. He feels like God's answering his prayers. He feels like maybe there's hope. And then verse eight, this word provided, appointed, um, is, a verse that, or is the word that um, Pastor Evan shared with us a couple of weeks ago, that this word's used four times in the book of Jonah. One was to provide the fish to swallow Jonah. And then we see it here in verse 6 that he provided uh, the shade. Verse 7, he provided the worm. In verse 8, he provided the scorching east wind. P.K. Smith and F.S. Page are, are theologians who wrote a commentary, said... Yet again, God prepared, to use that verb, provided, prepared, or appointed, an element of nature to be used in the education of his prophet, that God is the God of all creation. He can make a fish come and be able to swallow Jonah. He can make a plant grow just the way that he wants it to grow. He can make a wind come by or a worm uh, eat through a plant. He can make it so that the earth or the wind or the fire could come through um, and be able to do what he wants it to do. He can make it so that water can stand up on its end and the people of Israel can walk right through it. He can make a way where there is no way. He can do all of these things because he's the Lord of all creation. And we sometimes get angry when he prioritizes our holiness over our happiness. We want him to do what we think is right and often what we think is right is to be happy all the time. And so instead of instead of just seeing something temporary as our sole moment of happiness, that you know maybe some of us were, were happy that um, you know, we were able to, to get um, groceries or toilet paper, or we were happy that we were able to um, just be able to. I don't know, make it, make it through today and have our daily bread. And that is awesome stuff. But what does that mean? That means that that's taken away. Whatever we find our happiness in most is often what we um, worship most or whether we place the most value in. And so if we're only happy if someone approves of everything we do. Then God may take away that approval for us to find that our most important approval is through him. If we look to stuff or possessions, then that's what makes us happy. The newest, the greatest, the the best, whatever it is, then God may take away our stuff to recognize that he alone is the greatest. He alone is worthy of all of our praise. He alone is worthy of all of our attention. And if God, if we find our identity and how productive we are, then maybe God needs to take away work so that we find that our identity isn't in the work of our hands, but in the work of our Savior who spread his hands and nail-pierced hands and nail-pierced feet died on the cross so that we may have a right relationship with him. And so God provided a worm. He provided the scorching wind. And this word that we see here about how God, or Jonah is angry in verse 4, it's literally the word to be made hot. And so when he's having this word play with Jonah, this idea of, you know, is it right for you to be be hot after the situation? And Jonah's surrounded by a scorching wind. There's no more shade anymore. And and all of a sudden he's like, we see how he responds in verse nine when he says, uh, verse eight, it would be better for me to die than to live. Then verse nine, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, It is. He said, And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. He asks, he finally answers a question that God repeats in verse nine that he had already asked in verse four Is it right for you to be angry? When it's about the people being saved, Jonah doesn't respond. When it's about a plan, a temporary moment of happiness, rather than the holiness of recognizing that God loves all people and that we all fall short, so we all need God. There is no us versus them when it comes to our sinfulness. It's all of us need him to find the solution through a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, confessing he's Lord, believing in our hearts, and thus being saved. And so we see here that he says, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Which brings us to our next point. That says this, that rather than examining himself as the Lord had wished, Jonah examined the city to see if they were the ones who were changed. I mentioned that earlier. Now we may get angry with God. Here's our point, the third point, our final point for the day. We may get angry with God when we are more concerned with being comfortable than with comforting others. That when it's about our comfort, and not again, not in the idea of God is our comfort. That is valuable. that That is our identity, finding God as our comfort. But recognizing that we want to be comfortable. We want to feel safe and secure and happy rather than holy. And we want God to do things we think is right rather than what he thinks is right. And when we're more concerned with being comfortable than with comforting others, God calls that out and it makes us angry. This is why when Jonah says, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead, in verse 9. Then here's how we see um, this is how we see the Lord responds. Verse 10 But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? As Kevin mentioned last week, there's the part when the king says, you know, we're going to have all the people in sackcloth and also the animals. And God ends this section, the same thing saying, there's so many people who don't know their right hand from their left hand. And, and what does that mean? Or how, there's a couple commentators. One talks about how that could refer to 120,000 uh, young kids. So, so kids that are so young that they don't know their right from their left. Um, that's how one commentator or a couple commentators might think it is. But there's another perception of the idea that not knowing your right from your left is, a, is, a, is an expression that basically means you don't know what's right and what's wrong. So it could be that there's 120,000 people uh, at Nineveh or in Nineveh that don't know right from wrong. They don't know their what what they should do or what they shouldn't. And yet those 120,000 people, when they are called upon in order to repent and God relents, when Jonah, a prophet of God, sent by God for the message of God to share about the love of God, when he is confronted with repentance, he just wants to look out and see what the other people are doing. He wants to see what it's like to put all of the sinfulness out there to those people rather than recognize, as Paul does, that, you know, I'm the chief of all sinners. And so if God has shown the chief of all sinners grace and love and mercy, how much more so should he share that same grace and love and mercy to people who are far from him? So, in verse 11, we see this argument that when God's explaining why it is that he wants to save the people, here's what he says. When God is arguing about why he should be deeply concerned for Nineveh, he cites its population figure as a reason for the city's significance to him and uses the term Adam, the word for humankind. So essentially it says 120,000 of humanity, 120,000 Adam. It is as if God was saying, I care about human beings so, how much more should I be concerned to reach a place where so much humanity is amassed? God doesn't see only the chosen people and those who are far from God. God doesn't just see, He only loves Christians and He doesn't love those who are far from God, who don't have a relationship with Him, who worship um, other gods or other deities or don't have any faith system. God loves people, He loves humankind. Jesus died not just to save me from my sins, but to save the whole world, as 1 John 2 talks about, from their sins, if people confess and if people believe in him. And so this shows the heart of the Father, the heart of God, that he just wants people to be saved. So he wants there to be this incredible impact on Nineveh so that if Nineveh is changed and Nineveh is at the heart of the Assyrian Empire, then what's the potential for how big that change could be? How many lives can be changed by turning to God? But Jonah says he's not excited about the 120,000. He's not excited about the the, the ripple effects from that. He's mad because his leaf was eaten. He's mad because he wanted to be comfortable rather than to remember that, as Jesus would say, you know, blessed are those who are comfortable. No, that's not what he says. He says, Woe to those of you who find your comfort now. That find their comfort in this world now in the seven woes in Matthew. What Jesus said earlier in in Matthew 5 is the idea of blessed are those who are hurting for they will be comforted. Those who mourn, they will be comforted. He also said, Blessed are those who who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. And so, Jonah, misunderstanding what mercy is, wants there to be mercy upon himself, but he's not willing to show that mercy to other people. And Timothy Keller in his book, uh, The Prodigal Prophet, about the book of Jonah, says it this way, unless Jonah can see his own sin and see himself as living wholly by the mercy of God, he will never understand how God can be merciful to evil people and still be just and faithful. The story of Jonah, with all its twists and turns, is about how God takes Jonah, sometimes by the hand, other times by the scruff of the neck, to show him these things, to show him how much he loves people, to show him that, Jonah, you're my prophet, no matter how far you've tried to run away from me, God still pursues him, God still connects with him, God doesn't just write him off. So maybe some of you have run away from God because you're angry. And God's not writing you off. One of the things that Jonah does that's great is that in his anger, he still comes to God, right? God is big enough to handle all of our emotions. If we're angry at God, he's big enough to handle our anger. If we're sad, he's big enough to handle our sadness. If, he's, if we're anxious, he's big enough to handle our anxiety and, and whatever emotion we may feel, he can handle it. And if you want proof, again, just read the book of Psalms and how often there are times in which people are crying out and two thirds of the Psalms are laments and songs of sadness and, and God is big enough. And so Jonah, to his credit, goes to God with his frustration rather than running so far away from him that become apathetic and no longer wanna know who he is. So even though Jonah has a hardened heart, God still uses him. Even though Jonah messes up, God still gives him a mulligan. And even though Jonah runs away, God still loves him. No matter how much you've run away from God, he still loves you. No matter how many times you've messed up, He could take our sins and our mess-ups as far as the east is from the west. He could wipe us clean as white as snow when we were once crimson. He's in the business of taking people who've messed up and making masterpieces. He's in the business of taking people who are broken and making them made whole. He's in the business of recognizing that even when we run away, he still loves us that Jonah's an interesting story because a lot of twists and turns, Jonah makes a lot of mistakes, and yet God still uses him. May that be an encouragement that no matter how many mistakes you may have made in your life or maybe are still making, God can still use you. God can still pursue you. God still loves you. And he's not done with you. You'll want to close by doing something that maybe you can do on your own. And so if you're following along, you can write down these notes or whatever it is, or do this at some point, especially in this season when maybe we have some more stillness. Um, Pete Scazzaro is an author uh, that's written several books that I really enjoy. One of the things he does and he encourages is this idea of exploring the iceberg. And that terminology comes from the idea of if you... You know, an iceberg, like 90% of an iceberg isn't what sticks out over the water. It's, it's this huge mass of ice underneath. And so it's this idea of looking at what's underneath the surface. That we might come, you know, when we come on a church service, we might pretend everything's okay and everything's, you know, great. And, you know, family might be falling apart, but we say, oh, the kids are good. The spouse is good. Work might be driving us crazy. We say, oh, you know, I'm just, works fine. And we go on the surface, but we don't go underneath the surface. And, you know, uh, when it comes to what has the greater impact or does the most damage, when it comes to an iceberg, it's not the tip of the iceberg that caused the Titanic to sink. It was the huge mass underneath that cut right into the hole, right? So exploring the iceberg, we can ask these four questions in your time of journaling. Um, You could do this every day if you want to just process through your emotions. And, you know, just asking these questions. What are you mad about today? Again, we listed a bunch of things of reasons we might be mad in this season. Mad about finances, mad about um, schools being closed, mad about missing out on different things, mad about God seeming to do this at just the wrong time as, as if there'd ever be necessarily a good time for us. But, you know, we're mad about things. We're mad that things are different. So when we're mad about it, let's bring it to God. Let's write a a note to him. Let's let's journal through that. What are you sad about? Where's the grief and the loss and the mourning for you in this season? What are you missing out on? What were you looking forward to that now can't happen? What are you thinking about, you know, what does this mean to feel like My career is thrown off. My family's separated. We're not able to talk. My kids won't be able to walk during graduation. I won't be able to start my business. I mean, what are you sad about? What are you grieving? What are you mourning the loss of because of everything going on? What are you anxious about? And just journaling to God, God, I'm worried about how finances are going to come together. God, I am worried about how this is going to impact our kids and trying to, talk through kids. If you get a a cough or a sneeze and them asking, well, do you have the coronavirus? There's an anxiety there of how do you teach our kids and raise them in a season where things are completely different for them. And then what are you glad about? In, In the midst of this storm, God might be bringing a rain that provides a harvest through the soil of seeds he's been planting in you. What are you glad about? Because no matter where you are in the spectrum, it's important for us to remember that we often run away from God when we're angry. Thankfully, no matter how far away we run, we can't outrun him. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you so much um, for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, that we know we have made you angry we make you angry when we sin by sins of commission and things that we commit that we know are wrong. We make you angry when we sin of omission, when we omit things that we should do that we don't do. We know that we fall short, God. And so when we look at them and the, those people that we want to ride off, may we not look at them and say, oh, well, they're the worst, God. No, may we look in the mirror and say, as Paul did, that I am and the chief of all sinners. And so if you could show mercy and grace and forgiveness towards me as the chief of all sinners, then I know that you can show mercy and forgiveness and grace to the people that I think are too far gone. Lord, I pray that for any of us that are angry today, like Jonah, that we would lay that down at your feet, that we would bring it to you, not run from you. I pray, Lord, that you would minister to our hearts, and speak in and through us today. Lord, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for seeing all of us as people who are in need of you, whether we're Jonahs or we're Ninevites. We are all people who need a Savior in Jesus. So Lord, we love you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.